First, I would like to begin with just a discussion of some of the rights that the Prophet Muhammad has upon us. And I know that the Sheikh mentioned some of them, and inshallah, he did not, uh, he left me something, he did not mention all of them, inshallah. Uh, one, one of these rights, and one of the most important rights that the Prophet has upon us, is that we have love for the Prophet and this love is not, and from the Sharia point of view or from the Islamic point of view, it's not sufficient just that we love the Prophet If we have love for the Prophet but we do not love him more than anything else in this world, if we do not love him even more than our own souls, then in fact we do not have the proper love that is required by this Iman or this faith that we claim to have. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in, in a verse, قُلْ إِنْ كَانَ أَبَاؤُكُمْ وَأَبْنَاؤُكُمْ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions our fathers, our children, our wives, our tribes, our wealth, that we have, the housing that we live in, all of these things. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that if any of these things are more beloved to us than Allah and His Messenger, and striving in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then we should wait for the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to come. Or wait for the command. Literally it says wait for the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which means, as Mufassirina explained, wait for the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to come. And in other words, our love for the Prophet Muhammad must be such that he is more beloved to us than anything in the world. And the Prophet explained that also, he mentioned that explicitly in a hadith that he, we have to love him more than anything else in this world, including our parents and so forth. And in fact, one time, Umar al-Khattab mentioned to the Prophet that I love you more than I love anyone else except my own soul. And the Prophet told him that is not sufficient. And then finally he said, then I love you more, now I love you more even than I love my own soul. And the Prophet told him, now you have the correct iman. So when we talk about this aspect of having love for the Prophet Muhammad we're not just saying that we are required to love the Prophet and this is not what it means to have the true Iman, to have the true faith, but we are required to love the Prophet Muhammad more than anyone else and more than anything else in this dunya. And of course this love for the Prophet goes hand in hand with our love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We love the Prophet because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has asked us to love the Prophet and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has asked us to love the Prophet more than anyone else in this world. Now this is something that perhaps we do not find in ourselves right now. And it is possible that we could be lacking in this aspect of Iman, especially perhaps if we are a new Muslim and we do not know that much about the Prophet Muhammad We believe in La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, but we might be lacking this aspect. Well, if we, if we realize that we are lacking this aspect, we should realize that this is a very important shortcoming. That if we want to have the correct and full and complete Iman, we have to remove this shortcoming. And one of the ways of removing this shortcoming is by studying the life of the Prophet Muhammad and studying the sacrifices that he had made on behalf of conveying the message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
and the strivings that he made and the ittila or the trials that he had to go through in his life. And then the Prophet ﷺ was fulfilling all of those things on behalf for, for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we are the ones who benefit from all of that sacrifice and all of that jihad and all of that work that he did. And so therefore, when we follow the deen, when we recognize the bounty and the blessing of having iman, of, of believing in Islam, we have to recognize that much, uh, and we looked at it from, from the point of view of this world, much of the bounty, much of that bounty and blessing, alhamdulillah, is because or is through the struggle and the conveying of the message that the Prophet ﷺ went through. So we should go through the Prophet's life and study his seerah and gain a deeper appreciation of the Prophet Muhammad and what he has done on, on, on behalf of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we are benefiting from so much because we have now the advantage or the ability to get this Islam and to believe in Allah, uh, to believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This will inshallah increase our Iman. And of course, if we love the Prophet Muhammad before, above anyone else, more than anyone else, that of course has some implications. And one of these implications I'll talk about as one of the last ones of the hukuk or one of the rights of the Prophet Muhammad upon us. <coughs> so we have to have love for the Prophet which is beyond the love that we have for anyone else in this world. But secondly also, we must accept the Prophet Muhammad as our example. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولُ اللَّهِ أُسْرَةٌ حَسْنًا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us that we have in the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu the best example or perfect example for us or for those people يَرْجُ اللَّهُ وَيَوْمُ الْآخِرِ and those who look towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the last day and remember Allah often. So in this verse, and when we claim to be Muslim, when we claim to have iman and want to apply the law of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us in this verse that the best example for us if we want to know how to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if we want to know how to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if we want to know how we should behave then we should look to the manners and the behavior and the sunnah of the Prophet if we are sincere in our love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and our sincere and our desire to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and worship Him in the way that He should be worshipped, then we should look through the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad And in fact, this is similar to what we find in another verse in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, قُلْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحَبَّنَ اللَّهَ فَاتَّبِعُونِ يُحْبُبْكُمْ اللَّهُ وَيُطِلَّكُمْ ذُنُوبُكُمْ In which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Prophet Muhammad to tell the people, Say, if you truly love Allah, then follow me. Because if you have true love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that means you'll want to follow the way of life that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, if you truly love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, told the Prophet to tell us, if you truly love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then follow me. In other words, following me, you will be following the way of life that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And therefore, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will love you in return. And of course, if we truly love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the most important thing that we could see is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's love in return. So these two verses, when looked at together, show us that 
what that means is we have to take the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu as our example. And if anything comes up in our life, in any aspect of our life, whether it is related to akhlaq or behavior, whether it is related to ibadah or worship, whether it is related even in mu'amalat, we should look to the example of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alhamdulillah, one of the greatest blessings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has bestowed upon this ummah, which I'm sure you're all, all familiar with, and which sets this ummah apart from any other ummah, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us the bounty and the blessing that the life of our messenger has been preserved and preserved in detail. Well, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has done that for us, has preserved that for us, and that is a great blessing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has bestowed upon us. However, like all other blessings, if we use it in the right way, inshallah, we'll get ajr and reward for doing that. But if we ignore it and we don't accept, accept it and, and take that ni'mah or that blessing and, and use it in the right way, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may hold us accountable for that. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has preserved the life of the Prophet Muhammad not as some uh, historical record that historians may someday want to look at, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has preserved the life and the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad and his hadith in order for us to go to them and to look to that example and to take that from that uh, body of literature to learn to live our lives. So we have that great blessing and if we accept it and if we apply it properly, inshallah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward us for that. However, if we refuse to accept it or if we choose to ignore it, although Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us that great blessing that He has given no other ummah, if we choose to ignore it, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may hold us responsible for our lack of willingness to take this blessing and to use it in the proper way. So we must turn to the, the life of the Prophet and his teachings and his example if we want to follow the way of life that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Unfortunately, in the Muslim Ummah, perhaps, perhaps you find this more, Allah Alam, among some of the uh, Muslims who grew up in the Muslim world, and perhaps you do even among some uh, converts to Islam. But nowadays, it's, it's, it's not unusual to see Muslims taking people as examples other than the Prophet Especially as I said, in the Muslim world where there's been this kind of uh, defeatist attitude or uh, and a feeling that they are not as good as the rest of the world or in fact as, as the Western world. And so they, they have a tendency to look to the West and to take their leaders and to take examples from the West. And they follow the pattern, they follow the way of the West instead of following the example of the Prophet Muhammad and this is unfortunately one of the most uh, disgraceful or tragic things that you can find among the Muslim Ummah today. Because they have that great example that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had preserved for them. The great example of the, of the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu And yet instead they choose to follow in their lives people who are kuffar or have no understanding of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, no belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and no desire to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So in their customs, in their way of dress, 
in their in their uh, uh, in their special events, they follow the way of the kuffar. Like just the, just yesterday or the day before, that thing. So I sometimes get a little confused when I tell. Two days ago, <laughs> they received the facts uh, from someone in the Muslim world and from a particular country, which I guess shall be renamed nameless, but who has the reputation of preserving the Islamic identity. And this woman has, uh, she's an uh, American sister, but she's moved to that country. And she has a daughter who's maybe, I think, eight or nine now. So she's just received an invitation for her daughter to uh, join or to attend the local cotillion. I don't know if you're familiar with cotillions. No? <clears throat> you don't have them back east? I'm sure you have them <laughs> back east. <clears throat> cotillions are uh, special uh, events for uh, higher class, upper or middle, upper middle class, or upper class uh, young ladies who come out in, in uh, fashion gowns, you know, and, and it's like a big ball where they're presented to everyone, this is so-and-so, and it's a big event, and it's, it's the coming out of this young lady, and, and so forth. Anyway, it's something very particular to the West of the United States in, uh, in particular, and it's a big event among, especially among groups, uh, although sometimes not openly, but it's something very common among nations and, and, and stuff like that. And this same thing, as I said, is it's now being practiced and now being spread among, in the Muslim world. And it is kind of custom, this kind of practice, whether it is related to dress, whether it is related to any incidents or things that have really no meaning whatsoever, but because the people of the West do it, we do it. This is where they are taking as an example or as someone to follow other than the Prophet And this is something that we have to be aware of, because it is part of our shahada, it is part of our statement of Muhammad Rasulullah that it is his right upon us that we take him as our example and we do our best to follow his example and his way of life. And whenever we refuse to do that or whenever we are taking especially kuffar as our examples other than the Prophet Muhammad this means we are having some shortcoming in our shahada. We are not following the way of the believers but in fact we are following uh, the way of uh, non-believers. <coughs> Another one of, of the Prophet's rights upon us is his right to have our obedience. Well, I believe uh, Sheikh Sahib spoke about this in his lecture. He was not responding, so <laughs> Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in, uh, in many Many places in the Quran, Ya Yuladina Amnu, for example, Ya Yuladina Amnu, or Tehullah wa Tehullah Rasul, or Ya Yuladina Amnu, or Tehullah wa Rasul. And in this kind of phrase, that oh, oh, you who believe, oh, believers, obey Allah and obey the Messenger. And you will find this in numerous places in the Quran. And this means that if there's any command that has come from the Prophet Muhammad and not doesn't have to come as, uh, as for example, one famous verse that mentions says, Obey Allah and obey the Messenger and those in authority amongst you. The, the verb to obey, obey is put explicitly in front of Allah and in front of the Messenger and not in front of those in authority among you because the obedience to those in authority among you is 
restricted to those areas only in which they are obeying Allah and His Messenger. If they order you to do something that goes against the obedience uh, of Allah, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Messenger, then of course you don't obey them. So the, the obedience to the Prophet is, so to speak, absolute. And we do not have to find any evidence or any support necessarily for what the Prophet has told us in the Qur'an. And if the Prophet orders us to do something, it is similar or it should have the same effect as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ordering us to do something. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَنْ يَفِيعُ رَسُولُ فَقَدْ أَطَعَ اللَّهُ Whoever obeys, whoever has obeyed the messenger has in fact obeyed Allah. Well, some people I remember after giving a, a long lecture in one mosque about the uh, authority of the Sunnah and the importance of the Sunnah, one person commented afterwards and said, well, uh, what we've been taught and what I believe is whatever the Quran says goes and whatever the Sunnah says is okay. <laughs> and as if you have to obey the Quran, but when it comes to the Sunnah, and if you, if you follow it, it's good. If you don't, there's not really any hardship of, uh, upon it. And I found, I found, or I discovered one reason for that when, uh, as I, as I talked with many people, uh, especially among American uh, brothers and sisters, I found one reason for this confusion, at least what seems to me one reason for this confusion is that they, they confuse the word sunnah from a fiqh perspective from the word sunnah from an usul fiqh perspective. In other words, they confuse the word sunnah from the uh, science of uh, Islamic legal theory, and I call it Islamic legal theory because very few, very few people unfortunately put it into practice, so I call it Islamic legal theory. Uh, and, and this, and this, the meaning of sunnah here, and this is where we're talking about the importance of the sunnah. This, this is talking about the authority of the sunnah. In the same way, if you go to the Qur'an, you might find a verse in the Qur'an that gives an order or tells us to do something. That thing could be obligatory or could be recommended, depending on the nature of the verse, the nature of the word used in the verse and so forth. Similarly, if the Sunnah of the Prophet orders us to do something, that is from his Sunnah, but if he orders us to do something, that means this thing becomes obligatory upon us to do. So when we talk about the Sunnah as the authority of the Sunnah and from a legal uh, theory perspective, we're talking about the fact that the Prophet ﷺ can order us to do something and he has the right to order us to do something and it is obligatory upon us to follow that in the same way <coughs> that it is obligatory upon us to follow what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Quran. So don't get that confused with the fifth term Sunnah or Sunnah used in the fiqh sense, in which you use the word Sunnah to mean the thing is not obligatory. The two have no relationship whatsoever, so to speak. Uh, I assume they might have some relationship, but don't get them confused. When, we, when you say from a fiqh perspective that this thing is Sunnah, that means it's not obligatory. However, the source of that thing could be the Qur'an, it could be Hadith of Prophet it could be something else. So sunnah in that sense means something which is not obligatory. But this is not what we're talking about when we're talking about the place of the sunnah and Islam and the role of the sunnah. The sunnah here means the fact that the Prophet ﷺ and his speech and his life 
have been given the position of laying down laws and these laws we have to obey, we have to follow using the same principles and such that we have to obey and we have to follow the Qur'an. So don't get those two, the, unfortunately the same word is used for both sunnah and I have found that it has led to uh, lots of confusion among uh, especially newcomers to Islam that they hear, oh this thing is sunnah and do I have to do that? No, it's just sunnah, if you do it, it's good. So then they begin to equate this sunnah with the sunnah of the Prophet So, I hope that none of you make that confusion, but you might run into someone who makes that confusion and, and maybe you remember this talk and, and inshallah. <laughs> uh, you will be able to remember that and see why such a person is having uh, uh, that confusion in his mind. Also, another aspect which I'm pretty sure Sheikh Sahib had mentioned is the aspect of taking the, uh, the Prophet as a, as a judge or the, as a decider of the affairs among them. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَلَا وَرَبِّكَ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ حَتَّى يُحَكِّمُكَ فِيمَا شَجِرَ بَيْنَهُمْ ثُمَّ لَا يَجِلُوا فِي أَنْفُسِمْ حَرَجًا مِنَا قَبَيْتُ وَيُسَلِّمُوا تَسْلِيمًا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is swearing by your Lord uh, nay, by your Lord, talking to the Prophet Muhammad they are not true believers until they accept you as the decider of their affairs among them, <coughs> and they find no hardship in their hearts against what you have decided. And this shows that Iman is something much greater, much different from just an outward acceptance of what the Prophet has done. It's not just the Prophet has told us, uh, <coughs> for example, has ordered us to grow beard, and we grow beard, but in our hearts we don't like that order. No, a true believer, in his heart, he likes that order that the Prophet has given him because he knows that that order is something pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and when he accepts and he applies that order, he knows that he is pleasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, the true believer finds no hardship in his heart whatsoever for what the Prophet has ordered and he submits to him completely. And in fact this is one of the, uh, really if you want to talk about in general what are some of the principles for Islamic society as a whole, why do we have so many problems, what are some of the solutions to our problems. One of the, our problems is that in fact we do not judge by the Quran and Sunnah and we do not accept them as the final arbitrator in any of our disputes. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَإِن تَنَزَّعْكُمْ فِي شَيْنْ فَرِدُّهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُؤْمِنُونَ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمَ الْأَخْرِ That if we have any dispute in any matter among ourselves, among ourselves and our leaders for example, then we should take that dispute to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, meaning the book of Allah, the Qur'an, and to the Prophet to the Messenger, meaning during his life to him personally, and after his death to his sunnah, if we are true believers in Allah and the hereafter, if we are true believers in Allah and the hereafter, then the best way for us and the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded us is that any time we have any dispute, we must take it to the Qur'an and to the Sunnah and let those two decide what is right that we must follow on that issue. And this is something that if in fact we apply this thing properly, correctly, if we apply this principle properly and correctly, we will not find the kind of division and the kind of fighting and the kind of disputes that we find among the Muslims. 
And by the way, another uh, point related to this is not, it's not necessarily, by the way, that every issue that comes up, we, if we say we take it to the Qur'an and Sunnah, means that we'll find a definitive answer in the Qur'an and Sunnah and we have to follow and so forth. That's not necessarily the case. Maybe there's a case of, for example, what should we do about something here? Should we, uh, it's hot in here, so should we cover these windows or leave them open or whatever? And if we, as a group, as a community, we dispute in something, then even the principles, if we go back to the Qur'an and Sunnah, we see that the Qur'an and Sunnah tells us that we should obey our uh, leaders, those people who have been put in authority among us, who are rightfully there, we should obey them and we should uh, accept their conclusion, as long as it does not go against the Qur'an and Sunnah. So we have a matter which isn't going against the Qur'an and Sunnah, and our... Uh, for example, our leader who is widely appointed decides something, then we should accept his decision, we should not cause division among us, although we still have the right, which is also clear from the Quran Sunnah, to make nasihat, to advise him, and to show him maybe that we think his decision is incorrect and so forth. However, the point again is that if we follow this principle of taking our disputes to the Quran and Sunnah, inshallah our disputes will uh, be removed. And we, inshallah, we will be united, our hearts will come together in the same way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought the hearts of the Sahaba together who applied this principle of any any time they had some dispute, they would take their dispute to the Qur'an wa sunnah. <coughs> and finally, let me just <coughs> mention one more of the rights of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi and that is his right upon us that we honor him and we defend him and we respect him. Now, doing such does not mean just his uh, personality or his being as such, but we must also respect and defend and honor his teaching, his sunnah. It is our obligation, it is the ob- an obligation upon us to defend the honor, the teaching, and the practice or the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad This is his right upon us. In the same way that if we were alive during the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ, in the same way that had we had that great blessing of being alive during the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ, and yet we find the Kufar trying to attack him, we find the Quraysh, for example, trying to attack him, trying to kill him, in the same way that we would want to defend him physically, defend his life at that time, we should have that same feeling for defending his sunnah and defending his way of life nowadays. And especially nowadays, I'm sure you're all familiar, especially those of you living here in the United States, with the number of attacks that the sunnah, the way of life that the Prophet ﷺ has been under by people calling themselves Muslims, by people not just calling themselves Muslims, they might be, but even calling, claiming to be scholars, claiming to be leaders of Islam and so forth who have attacked the sunnah, who have attacked the way of the Prophet ﷺ. It is our obligation to fight them and to defend the honor and the teachings of the Prophet ﷺ. Sometimes some people get get surprised, how come we get so upset when there is some kind of bid'ah? So you people, you always, you always care about bid'ah and you are always fighting against bid'ah and innovations and heresies. Yes, of course, because this is part of the Prophet 
This part actually of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's right upon us and it is part of the Prophet sallallahu right upon us for us to defend his sunnah. If you look at the nature, the nature of bid'ah, what bid'ah is, it is actually someone saying that what the Prophet sallallahu said and did is not sufficient or it's not the best way. They have some way that is better, they have some way that is more fulfilling, they have some way that is getting closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala more than what the Prophet sallallahu did. This is an insult to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his revelations and to the sunnah and to the life of the Prophet Muhammad So we cannot just sit back and take it lightly and say, okay, you have your opinion and I have mine. And let's come together, let's live together as brothers. No, this is a strong weakness in that person's uh, application of Islam. And it is attack on Islam itself. So we have the obligation to defend the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. In fact, we have the obligation to defend the integrity of Islam, the religion of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. So therefore, it's our obligation to do whatever we can to stop those kind of things. And those kind of things, of course, become bigger and bigger. Unfortunately, if you leave those things, they do have a tendency to become bigger and bigger, as we find in some of the statements of the, of the early scholars that the bid'ah, many of them, they began as something small and they became something great. That said, it even led some people to, to leave the fold of Islam. And the same is the, is the case with the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad If you look maybe 100 years ago or 80 years ago, there was some question about some hadith. Some people began to question some hadith and say this hadith was an authentic and this hadith was an authentic. Uh, and even though those hadith were accepted by the scholars of Islam and hadithin, the scholars of hadith. But then it came from, oh let's question this, this hadith to, let's question the judgment and the opinion or the statement of the Prophet himself. And he went from one to the other. For example, now there are some people who accept the hadith as sahih and they say, this is a sahih hadith, I have no question about that. But what the Prophet said was wrong. And for, for example, there's some people about the, uh, about the woman, uh, the hadith of the Prophet in, in which he, uh, and he paraphrasing, he said that people will not prosper if their, if their, if their affairs are in the hands of the ruler. There are some people nowadays who reject that hadith and they say it's not sahih. Okay, that's one thing, that's in that first chapter. <coughs> yes. I mean, Led by one. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's still early for me. <laughs> the, the Prophet ﷺ said that the people will not prosper if their affairs are in the hands of a woman. Regardless of what I said earlier, forget What I said earlier has now been abrogated. Okay. If, their ha- if their affairs are in the hands of a woman. Now there's some people who say this hadith is not sahih. This is a hadith is in Sahih Bukhari. This is a sahih hadith. Let me say that. The Muhammadin are agreed. There's some people nowadays who say that it's not sahih. Okay, that's from that one category that I mentioned. But there's others who say, yes, that's a sahih hadith. But had the Prophet been alive today now and seen, for example, Indira Gandhi and Golda Meir and Margaret Thatcher, and I guess Mrs. Clinton we can throw in there too. Had the Prophet seen these people, he would not have made that statement. 
So this now, this is an attack on the, this is actually an attack on the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but in, in specific, it is an attack on the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu on his sunnah. And it is his right upon us that we defend his sunnah, and we refute those people who make such claims, and not only refute them, but actually we fight them in the means or in the ways that we are allowed to fight them. In other words, we don't just sit quietly, but we speak out against them. <coughs> And we try to put an end to that. And in fact, one person went even further in a speech <coughs> at a convention here in the United States, a Muslim convention, in which he said that the Prophet ﷺ, uh, used to make ijtihad, and sometimes the Prophet ﷺ was wrong in his ijtihad. Okay, now those two are things that the Usulim, the legal theorists, debate, did the Prophet ﷺ make ijtihad or not? If he made ijtihad, was he wrong or right? So those two are you know, historically speaking, we can accept those two. However, the next statement he said is that the Prophet ﷺ, when he made his jihad, and when he was wrong, all of the scholars up until now, they said that if the Prophet ﷺ made his jihad, and if his jihad was ever wrong, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala corrected him. Do not allow him to uh, continue in his mistake for those who say that he made his jihad and he made the wrong. But this person now, there's more than one person now, he says, that oh, the Prophet ﷺ made his jihad, he was incorrect in his jihad, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not correct him. So we have to go to the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, his hadith, and decide where was he right and where was he wrong. And if these are the kind of things, if we really believe in the shahada, if we are true to our shahada, and our statement that we believe that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, it is his right upon us that we do our best to defend his sunnah, his way of life, from these kinds of statements. And this is actually his right upon us. And we should take this right seriously, because this shahada, as we know, this is the way that we become in, come into Islam, and this is the key to Islam, and whenever we are lacking in the rights or the responsibility, and in the understandings of our shahada, this in fact means that we are lacking in our Islam, in our Iman. So anytime we have such a shortcoming, we have to do our best uh, to remove that shortcoming, if for example we don't defend the, the sunnah of the Prophet we have to make ourselves strong so that we will defend him. If we do not accept him as a judge, we must remove this weakness from him, from ourselves. If we do not take him as our example to follow, then we must realize our mistake and change that. If we do not love him more than anyone else in this world, then we have to realize that that is our obligation and we have to increase our love for the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi through whatever means so that we fulfill <coughs> that right upon us and I think that's all the, the time that I have so inshallah I will stop here أقول قل هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم Of the 
I was waiting for that question. Are you talking about biography or are you talking about also his hadith? Uh, okay, because alhamdulillah his hadith, as you know, we have Sayyid Bukhari, we have Sayyid Muslim and English. Uh, his biography, uh, now I'm not, I'm, there's, there's many, many biographies out there, so I'm not familiar with all of them. So I'm afraid that if, uh, if I if I leave some out, maybe someone will get the idea. Just uh, uh, that one, uh, in my opinion, maybe I don't think it's uh, good. But unfortunately, all all of the uh, all of the biographies, like many of the early biographies, they all have uh, some kind of common defect, and that that major defect is really relying on narrations which are not always authentic. Uh, and this is true for many of the books in Arabic as it is true for, for the books in English. So, I have yet really to come across a, uh, a seerah, life of the Prophet Muhammad which uh, I have found really to my life. There's one by Abu Hassan Ali Nadu, Muhammad Rasulullah, which he makes some good points. It's, it's very basic, very, uh, doesn't go too deep. Uh, there's one by uh, Al-Umari, in which he discusses some of the aspects of the life of Prophet in Medina. Uh, he has done a great deal of research. Some of his conclusions some people may not uh, agree with. Uh, there's one by, uh, there's one that's been translated into English by Mustafa Sadai, which takes some of the, uh, some of the uh, aspects, talks a little bit about the seerah of the Prophet and then, and then tells us what are the lessons from those uh, things in the Prophet life, and I guess that should be published sometime in the near future. Uh, is that all good? <laughs> it seems to be on a, it's, it's on a ship, I guess, somewhere between here and Lebanon. It's looking uh, the, the, the name, uh, I believe, the way they put it in English is uh, the, the life of the Prophet, lessons and, uh, the life of the Prophet, lessons and something I don't remember. Uh, it's by, well, it's by Mustafa Sabai. Yeah. Inshallah. Now, uh, inshallah, actually, I would prefer to leave that for there's a uh, a panel discussion tomorrow tonight? Yeah. Tonight? There's a panel discussion tonight at nine fifteen with Sheikh Sahib on the authority the authority of the Sunnah. So that should discuss that kind of question. So I prefer to leave that tonight. <laughs> Thank you.
During the Sahaba, as we know, they they learn <coughs> they learn their deen from uh, from Muhammad and they apply the Quran and they apply the Quran in such a way that uh, it was pleasing to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. Had they been applying the Quran and understanding the Quran, as we find in 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 particular instances where they misunderstood the Quran. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu corrected their misunderstanding and so forth. So what we get from the, the Sahaba is a general picture and in other words their general characteristics, these are all characteristics which are unquestionably characteristics that we are supposed to possess. So if you take some general characteristics that they have, uh, their understanding for example of jihad, uh, their understanding of uh, Iman, their understanding of, of Aqidah, their understanding of how to make Dawah, their understanding of uh, individual obligation versus uh, communal obligation and all of these things. These things, are there's no question that their understanding in these things was correct. We have to accept them, we have to follow them. Of course, they're all based on the Qur'an wa Now, if you're going to ask perhaps about their individual ijtihad, uh, if you have, if they have, if, they, if there's ijma among them on, on a fifth point, then again, that is hujjah, we have to accept their ijma and follow their ijma. If they made ijtihad about something and they disagreed with each other, uh, or they made ijtihad which was in contradiction to the Quran, to the sunnah, let's say, because, uh, perhaps there was some sunnah that they were not aware of, uh, then obviously we follow the stronger proof which is the sunnah. Or if there's disagreement among them, then we study and see whether there are evidence and then we follow the strong opinion among them. But otherwise, their way of life as a whole and their understanding of the deen and their application of the deen, this is the correct application of the deen that we must follow. I'll take a question from the sister and then I Sometimes there's those things that, you know, as you're about to speak about them, you say to yourself, should I really get into this? <laughs> so this would be much better if I had a, a board, if I could write on these uh, posters. <laughs> uh, what, what I was saying is that when we say that the, uh, when we talk from, from the point of view of Islamic legal theory, when we talk about what is an authority in Islam, we mention, for example, the Quran, and then, or with the Sunnah of the Prophet so let's take an example from the from the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, for example, Aqimu Salah. And this is a verse from the Quran which implies the obligation of the prayer. Establish the prayer. This is in order to uh, perform the prayer. So we can conclude from this verse that the prayer is obligatory from this verse in the Quran. However, there's there are other places in the Quran in which, for example, writing the uh, if we have some kind of business uh, contract, writing it down has been mentioned in the Quran. However, the Quran makes it clear that this is not something obligatory, it is something recommended. So this writing down of, uh, of transactions, business transactions, is recommended. So it's based on the Quran, but it is recommended. So we have from one verse in the Quran something which is obligatory and 
from another verse in the Quran, something which is recommended, you can call that thing which is recommended sunnah or mustahab or mandur, whatever word you want to use. Okay. Similar, if we go to the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, if the Prophet ﷺ gave us an order, now how to know if something is an order that goes back to uh, the linguistic makeup of the, of the sentence and other uh, other things that point to be obligatory. But if the Prophet ﷺ ordered, for example, the people to grow a beard, then this order means that this action is obligatory. It came from the Prophet ﷺ, in other words, its source is the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, but it is wajib or obligatory. Okay, so the the source of an action, whether it is the Qur'an or the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, uh, regardless of the source, that action may be obligatory, may be recommended, it may be permissible, and so forth. So, but unfortunately, the the fuqaha or the jurists uh, they use the word sunnah as opposed to obligatory, as opposed to wajib. So, in other words, when we talk about the obligation of following the sunnah, we're talking about our obligation as a whole to accept whatever the sunnah says. If the sunnah says this thing is obligatory, we accept it. If the sunnah says this thing is recommended, we accept it. If the sunnah says this thing is, is permissible, we accept it. If the sunnah, in other words, the, the life and the, the sayings of the Prophet ﷺ says this thing is disliked, we accept that. If it says it's haram, we accept that. That is different from saying in action, a particular action is sunnah, at least in the later terminology of the fuqaha, of the jurist. This means that this act is less than obligatory, it is not obligatory, However, it's more than simply permissible. It is something you should do. If you do it, inshallah, you'll be rewarded by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. particular and with respect to Ibadah. I mean there's, there's uh, certain conditions that if we, if we meet these conditions or we're following the Sunnah in the pro- proper way, for example, 
the sinna made the, or the sharia. So one of the things that the Prophet did not do, it is not narrated, reported from him whatsoever in any authentic narration, is the wiping of the neck. He did not do it. Okay. So if we want to make wudu in the way that the Prophet did it, okay, I mean just put yourself in that situation. You want to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the way that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and the only way that you know uh, the only way that you can know what is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is by following the way of the Prophet So, you want to make wudu for prayer, the only way you know how to make wudu in such a way that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is by following the way of the Prophet When the Prophet wiped his, uh, his uh, head, for example, he did not wipe his neck. So if you're going to follow his example, you will not wipe his neck. Now, if someone else comes along and says that the, white, the head should be wiped, he might be basing that on many things. He might be basing it on a narration which isn't authentic. He might be just following some scholar who said that and so forth. And he should deal with him politely and see what's the reason that he says that. But the fact is, the Prophet for, for you, for the one who knows the Prophet didn't do that, he should not do it because in that way he is in fact not following the way of the Prophet so the, the dress and also this is something that uh, uh, might be covered later I mean the principles but to say that you dress is not uh, how did you say it you're not wearing the sunnah I like that you're not wearing the sunnah should you have Sahih Bukhari wrapped around here <laughs> you're not wearing the sunnah it's kind of a strange you know <laughs> The dress is not according to the sunnah would be a much better way to say Well, the dress according to the, the sunnah, the sunnah from the point of view of, of the of sunnah fiqh, or what it is required for us to follow. There's no specific dress that we have to follow, except there's some principles. Uh, it should be a dress of modesty. It should be a dress that covers the aura. It should be a dress that covers the aura in a proper way, in a loose way, and such that the aura is not described, it's not see-through and, and, and stuff like that. It should be a dress that is not the dress of the kuffar and so forth. So, these are the things that if you mean that you are not dressing according to the sunnah, it means you are not dressing uh, according to these principles of the sharia with respect to dress. But if someone is not wearing uh, a black anama, for example, and you see that he's not wearing a black imamah, you cannot say you're not dressing according to the sunnah, because although the Prophet and when we say that we follow the sunnah, that means we follow the Prophet in those things that the Prophet or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted us to follow him in. There are things that the Prophet made it clear to his sahaba, that these are things that uh, he, he's not asking his followers to follow him. He didn't like some kind of food because it wasn't the food of his people. He didn't tell the other people, you know, you shouldn't like it either. But so when we say we're following the sunnah, we're following the sunnah means that we're following those parts of the sunnah that we are supposed to follow and apply in our lives. Um, and I have two questions from the sisters. Um, where they told the uh, first question, could you see why some Muslims think that they uh, have a choice to practice the sunnah when the Quran and Allah says to do so? Well, I cannot really explain why the Muslims say uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, there are some, unfortunately, some uh, 
there are some people nowadays who are spreading this idea and they are giving some people some doubts and some misconceptions and there might be some other people I and Allah alam but there are some people probably who know that's wrong and there's some people who have just been caught up in the way and there are some people who are just ignorant and they do not see the false nature of what these people are saying so they just take it from them and they, and they repeat it uh, so and uh, to put it frankly no one in his right mind would say that we have a choice to follow the sunnah or not because the place of the sunnah has been confirmed in over 40 places in the Quran and then we add to that the, the Prophet's own statement about uh, his sunnah, the ijma'ah and so forth there's no way that anyone would say that but unfortunately the shaitan has brought some doubts and some misconceptions to some people's mind and some people may not have the understanding, the knowledge to understand, to, to see the false, falseness of those uh, doubts and so therefore they are confused or they are misled by them so, so for example her parents are, became Muslim and they have a, a, a daughter who is uh, underage uh, it, it is not and then she grows up with them they teach her about Islam and, and she makes the uh, she makes the salat she learns the salat and so forth it's not necessary for her then to go at the time of puberty and to go and make the shahada. This is not necessary. Well, I think the, the best way is uh, uh, to be frank and we have to be active in making our doubt. See, the, the problem is if the only people who are active in making da'wah in certain areas, let's say, are the nation of Islam, then that's all the people are going to know is the nation of Islam. Now, we have to be active in making our own da'wah so that people hear about the true Islam and 
whether we are uh, open or whether or not just from our, our literature they will be able to understand that this Islam is different from the nation Islam. Depends on the situation. Some cases you might want to openly discuss what's why we are different from them or why they are different from us. Other cases just if they have some understanding of the nation of Islam and you just tell them for example about the Shahada and the finality of the Prophet Muhammad that will be enough for them to realize there is some difference between you, you and them. So the, if, we, if we really fulfill our responsibility and take an active role in making da'wah and spreading Islam, uh, the, the difference between us and, and them will be clear to, to everyone because it's a, it's a special mission of Islam. It's a big difference between us. I mean, the, the, uh, there's others who claim to be from us. Now, those who claim to be from us, then it's a little bit more difficult to say, well, they claim to be from us, but actually there's a lot of differences between us. That's a little bit more difficult and a little bit more uh, touchy in how to handle it. But if the groups are, you know, clearly outside of, uh, of Islam, then just by us propagating what is Islam, inshallah, we will uh, uh, spread the true Islam and people will see clearly the differences between us and them. automatically uh, kafir unless he does not have the knowledge to know that it is kafir then, then kufr then we uh, and we have to explain to him that that, that is kufr but and it's not probably it's not as important to say <coughs> to identify this group as kufar or to identify this group as kufar uh, probably what <coughs> much more important and a much probably a much better way to approach it is to take the issue, the issues, for example, to claim that there's any prophet after the Prophet Muhammad this is a statement of prophet that is actually uh, absolutely unacceptable and this is the proof from and so forth. So now you don't have to say that this group that believes in a prophet, uh, it's not, after you've said that, it's not necessarily, not necessarily necessary for you to go and say that this group are kafar. However, you make it clear that their teachings and what they're preaching it's kufr and it's not from Islam or sort. But inshallah should be sufficient in most cases.
What are the, the issues of, of the deen? Uh, and I've been to many mosques, for example, uh, which are completely uh, followers of, of WD. But in many cases, they, they really they have no idea. No one has come to them and taught them anything besides what they hear from, from the Imam. That's, that's, that's all they know about deen. So, a very important way of, of approaching them uh, you know, ignoring uh, WD for the time being, I mean the individuals, is by teaching to them what is Islam, I mean going to the Quran, going to the Sunnah, and showing them what it is uh, that we have to follow. For example, those cases that you, that you mentioned, if someone has uh, a strong belief that the Quran is the word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it is to be applied until the day of judgment, and we as, as uh, uh, as believers, we have no right to question anything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded us to prohibit this uh, to do. And once Allah and His Messenger have decided something, we have no say in the matter. And then from there, uh, you discuss the authority of the Sunnah from the point of view of the Quran. How the Sunnah shows, how the Quran shows us that we have to follow and accept the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu and then we discuss what is the sunnah of the Prophet and so forth. If someone has a strong understanding of those three points itself, then they will not have any of the conclusions that you mentioned. Okay? So, I think sometimes we, we, we get up into other issues, sometimes we discuss, for example, the personality of WD, and we think that that might solve this problem. No. Even if you remove him, as long as they don't think we have to follow the sunnah, then they're going to still have a problem. They're just going to move from WD to somebody else who's saying the same. There's many others. So we have to we have to attack these issues and and make the people understand these issues so that on their own then they will change and say, yeah, this is what the Quran says. So I'm going to ignore uh, what uh, you know what anyone says that goes against. Well, that's always, of course, a good answer. <laughs> I mean, obviously, your methodology has to be uh, giving them the truth, and, and you have to be patient with them. Today? <laughs> well, I mean, a dawah itself, uh, a dawah is not forcing your opinion on someone else, right? As Brother Ali mentioned, I think just last night, about some of the principles of dawah. It is the giving of the knowledge that you have to them and convincing them, showing them their knowledge and letting them decide really uh, what they'll do with respect to their knowledge. So a da'wah, when you make da'wah, you are trying to bring people to the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You're not trying to bring people to your way. Oh, this is my religion coming for my religion. You're trying to bring people to the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So depending on the person you're dealing with, this means either sometimes you have to be patient, sometimes you have to be a little bit harsher. Okay. I mean, jihad, fighting, is part of da'wah. 
Some people don't realize that they don't like jihad. So some people who talk the most about da'wah, they hate jihad and they think jihad is no such thing as jihad. Jihad is part of da'wah. I mean, if you want people to enter into Islam, the best way is let's take away that false way of life that they have, impose an Islamic government on them, let them see what Islam is, let them hear about Islam, and they will enter into Islam. But most people talk about da'wah, they say, no, no, there's no jihad, we don't believe in jihad. What does this mean? But in da'wah, we don't believe in jihad. And if you are really sincere about bringing people to Islam, you want to open all the doors for them to see what is Islam, to hear about Islam, and make sure that there's no, nothing over them that might affect them or influence them to, to keep away from Islam. So, uh, that's probably another, we probably got into another talk about, about Dawah and what's the stages and, and so, I will stop there before I <laughs>